preaching to you this morning from my absolute favorite passage in my favorite book. That is chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. So I want to ask you to stand with me as I read aloud from chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Your witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Father, we, of course, want so much to honor you with how we respond to this text of Scripture, your word, your heart on paper, as you've given it to us, that we might understand this unique and yet critical relationship, the shepherd and his sheep. We ask this for the sake of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I was told a number of years ago, Todd, you need to stop thinking as a shepherd. You need to stop operating as a shepherd and start operating as a rancher. Exact words from my boss at a church where I was on staff. I was spending too much time focusing on the people in the church and needed to do a better job of gathering more people into the church. And I would add to that, I would qualify that by saying regardless of their spiritual condition, the whole point, the whole purpose was to increase the numbers and really ultimately to increase the amount of money in the church. So many of you are aware of the major downslide of Andy Stanley, who at one point, maybe 20 years ago, might have been considered to be a, a faithful pastor. Andy Stanley, at least in my book, is first known not for what he has said recently about unhitching yourself from the Old Testament. That really says everything about his heart, his life, his ministry. But in my book, he's best known for the idea that a pastor needs to do away with the concept of being a shepherd. 
In the 20th century, he said, obviously a number of years ago, in the 20th century, a pastor needs to be a CEO. And so you can probably think of plenty of men who title themselves pastor who do just that. It's all about being a more effective businessman. Certainly, there are elements of business that the church is responsible for. But those things simply ought to be handled as a byproduct, really ancillary, yet important duties that come out of a heart of integrity. Not that we would handle them in a way that is modeled by the world, that we model the world's excellence. The truth is we ought to handle them better than the world does or would. But all those things should stem from a heart that longs to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. The matter of shepherding is no small task. It's daunting. It's heavy. It's nearly unbearable. You are aware of the passage in Hebrews 13. It says to the spiritual leader that he's responsible for the souls of those under his care. Not a day, really not an hour goes by where that is not on my mind. I don't control your lives, I'm not your boss, not your manager, but I am responsible for your soul. I am responsible for your spiritual condition. Every bit as much as a husband is responsible for the spiritual condition of his wife and his children. I have the great blessing, and I think this is kind of unusual, at least in my experience, I have the great blessing of bearing that responsibility with a significant number of faithful men who are part of our elder team, our shepherding team. But I would add to that that I have the great blessing of sharing that responsibility with a significant number of men and women who are not on our shepherding team but are simply faithful Christians who understand that the call upon the life of the elder in terms of integrity, spiritual condition, is the same for every believer See, when you get to the place where those two realities connect, really that one reality, that the spiritual condition of the elder is by no means intended to be higher than the spiritual condition of the faithful believer in the church, when you make that connection, you'll stop playing around. You know, you'll stop playing the spiritual game that, that says, you know, so long as I'm doing kind of okay in the church, is, in terms of what people see and think every other Sunday or so. You'll do away with that at the point where you understand that the call upon your life in terms of spiritual integrity, spiritual maturity, is the same as mine. It's exactly the same. I don't have a higher standard. It's the same standard. And part of a shepherd's duty is to ensure that people understand that because the person who sits in the congregation and listens to the teaching and walks away thinking, man, I'm sure grateful for the pastor who takes care of all that stuff so I don't have to, or I'm sure grateful for his integrity or their integrity if it's a number of pastors because, man, I'll never achieve that level of integrity or spiritual maturity or hard-workingness, you know, the willingness to actually spend so much time or so much effort or a commitment to excellence. I'm glad that I don't have to do that. That is a real drastic, drastic 
misunderstanding of what the Lord has called you to. And let me just tell you something. This has everything to do with why you are spiritually miserable if you are. Do you understand this? So I make no apology for, and you know I absolutely make no hesitation with regard to saying the things you need to hear. The question for you, the question for you, as a person responsible for sitting under faithful shepherding is, are you walking in a manner worthy of God so that you are capable and equipped to assess the shepherd? Is the shepherd speaking truth to you, and does he love you? Does he care for you, not only enough to tell you what you need to hear, but does he speak the truth in love? And so this text that we're going to look at together this morning really gives us an essential platform, really a fundamental treatise on biblical shepherding. But there's more to it than just you understanding what that shepherding looks like. Let me warn you, at the point where we get through this, you will not be just that much more accountable to understand what a faithful shepherd is, but you'll be that much more accountable for what your response needs to be. That should be exciting to you. You should be thrilled with the idea of better understanding how a faithful shepherd or faithful shepherds will lead you to be more faithful as God's children. Take a look at your thesis statement there, your so that statement. Paul shows us that a shepherd is approved by God and by man for his bold declaration of the gospel, his exemplary life, and his loving affection so that his flock will walk in a manner worthy of God. That alone ought to stir your heart. This is not just about you. It's certainly, in fact, it's not at all about you coming and assessing the teaching to determine whether or not the teaching is good. It's about you knowing whether or not it is so that you can increasingly walk in a manner worthy of God. You say, Todd, that's a responsibility that's absolutely ridiculous, completely impossible. Well, if you were paying attention as you read with me from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12, you know that that's the goal. Those are Paul's words. I'm parroting Paul's words that you would walk in a manner worthy of God. And so I think a great place to start our time together this morning is right now, in this moment, privately, not out loud, in the privacy of your mind, with God, ask the question, am I even trying to do that? Is my day filled with efforts to rest in the work of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection and to display the realities of what that looks like in a person's life, that someone would say about me, someone that really has the ability to genuinely assess my life, so not your mom, or maybe it is for some of you, but spiritually mature people, would they say, that's a life that reflects the worth of God. Now, i got to first ask, do you even care about that? And knowing most of you pretty well, I know that you do. If that's where your heart is, then you're at the right place this morning and the right time. And the Lord has laid this out with amazing clarity and affection. It's not just truth in black and white terms. It's 
truth in loving, living color in ways that you can relate to. You understand what it means to be loved. You understand what it means to be cared for. And probably most of you understand what it means to be cared for in a way that hurts but helps. If my teaching doesn't occasionally hurt so that it helps, it doesn't help, right? If you already agreed with everything I have to say, you'd have no need for me. One of the significant elements of faithful teaching is that it draws out. You remember that from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that two-sermon series we did a few weeks ago? The man of God is to be equipped for reproof, for rebuke, for uncovering the doctrinal and real-life problems in people's lives. The person who sits and listens to godly counsel and walks away and really does nothing about it really ought to be concerned for his soul. You're blessed amazingly. Every single one of you in our church, every single person in our church, you're blessed immeasurably with a godly man who loves you, who loves Christ, and meets with you not only every other week, but whenever you need to. You have a shepherd, a faithful shepherd. Your family group shepherd loves you with his life, as Paul says about himself and Timothy and Silvanus. You remember that? We loved you not only with the gospel, but also with ourselves. We shared with you. The NAS says not only we shared with you the gospel, but also our lives, our very lives. But listen, let me go beyond that. You not only have the blessing, like, some, like a lot of people do, who have a faithful pastor, maybe a small church. They have one pastor, and he's faithful. But you not only have that blessing of having that family group shepherd who cares for you and loves you, you have a network of faithful, connected shepherds. Those are our elders. So it's not like it's just one guy who you go, yeah, he's a pretty good guy. Yeah, he's trustworthy. You know, I can assess him. You have a group of men who constantly assess each other's lives, deal with each other's sin. And I just want to be very practically candid and personal with you and tell you that our elders meetings involve confession of sin. It's not unusual for one of our elders to say, guys, pray for me, but hold me accountable in this area. If that's not going on with a man who is in the position of shepherding the flock, then run fast. Who's he accountable to if not those men? Well, look with me back at this text. We'll go through it, and I trust that the Lord will move on our hearts, all of us, to walk in a manner worthy of God, as Paul has called us to do. Point number one, a shepherd must have approval, letter A, from faithful men. He must have approval from faithful men, not just some group of people. Look at this. For you yourselves, who's he talking to? He's talking to the faithful Thessalonians. He's already commended them, right, for their spiritual maturity. You, he says, brothers, know that our coming to you was not meaningless. If a pastor can't say this after some appreciable period of time, you know that there is a result in your life that's the result of our lives. That's what he's saying. 
If a guy can't say that after some significant period of time, he needs to question himself, his faithfulness, his spiritual condition, and everybody else needs to do that as well. This approval, this affirmation comes from faithful men. A shepherd, listen, a shepherd does not want his ministry to be deemed meaningless. Who wants that? You know, the 80-year-old pastor who gets to the end of his life and looks back and sees a trail of nothing or a bunch of buildings. I know one guy who boasts on his website of the size of the campus, the acreage, and the number of buildings and the square footage. That's what it comes down to. Oh, and the membership role, which is 8,000 when there aren't anywhere near that many people there. I was told one time, Todd, even when somebody dies, don't take them off the roll. Pastor doesn't like it. That's an exact quote. Shepherd does not want his ministry to be deemed meaningless. And it's the, listen, it's the condition of the sheep in his flock that will be the judge of that, right? Not just the people assessing him, but their spiritual condition. You are a reflection of our pastoral team the natural reality, but it's also a biblical reality. Are they faithfully endeavoring, are you faithfully endeavoring to walk in a manner worthy of God as a result of your shepherd's faithful endeavoring to walk in a manner worthy of God? Now, again, just to be real practical and hopefully real helpful, look around the room. The significant and larger percentage of people in this room, in our church, are in fact evidence of this biblical blueprint. I don't say that to boast about you or me or anything else. I'm just saying the Lord is doing a faithful work through people who are willing to say, this is what the New Testament church looks like. The faithful shepherd must earn the approval of men who receive God's word and love the gospel, who are clearly chosen by God as evidenced in their faithfulness, but also their affirmation from others. Look back with me at chapter 1, verse 2. Go back to chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You see, the person, think of it, the person who has no interest in being known by a gospel-saturated life hates the doctrine of election and redefines it because this is the test as to whether or not you're of the elect. That's why people hate the doctrine of election. It's obvious. Paul attests to the faithfulness and therefore the election of the Thessalonians, but he also speaks of their imitation of him and Silvanus and Timothy that led to the Thessalonians' effective evangelistic ministry throughout the land. So much so that their reputation is in no need of Paul's defense, and he says so. I don't need to say this about you, but then he does. Speaking of their immeasurable impact 
throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Chapter 1, verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. But Paul boldly, not pridefully, but confidently asserts that it was his and Timothy's and Sylvanus's faithfulness that laid a platform for their faithfulness. That's the only way it can work. Verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. You see that? There's a report of the faithfulness that we displayed that led to your faithfulness and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Interesting, huh? I've got no hesitation and, again, no apology about pointing out that this is the reality of our local church. If it weren't, I would need to step down. So many men are unwilling to step down for various reasons, but this is the only way the New Testament church works. For they themselves report concerning us. You see that? Concerning us. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. They report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. You turn from idols to the one true God, and to this day you faithfully await the return of the risen Son of God, the Christ. Paul is saying, you know the Lord used us as a model group of Christian men to influence you to become model Christians. You can't fake this. Godly people did not become godly people by following hypocrites. It does not happen that way. You can't fake this. But certainly, people will attempt to fake it. Not only in the pulpit, in the ministry, but there will be tares among the wheat. There will be those who attempt to fake it, but one at a time and eventually groups at a time and eventually the whole church at a time will realize the guy's faking it. He's not displaying the kind of character that the leadership displays that has led to the same kind of character throughout the church. Now look down at chapter 2, verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. You witnessed that. This is why we say the faithful shepherd must have the approval of men. Think of the the pastor who has no accountability, doesn't want accountability, doesn't want to be assessed. He simply wants to teach. He's not a shepherd. Something's going on. There's something he's hiding if he's not willing to be exposed. Paul's testimony is that they knew this about them. People eventually discover the truth about their shepherd. 
And the idea is not that you seek approval. It is that in your faithfulness to God and to people, a true shepherd will naturally and certainly receive hearty approval. Right? He's not looking to be patted on the back. That's not the idea. The fact is it will simply happen. Those who are paying attention will assess his character. He must be approved without seeking to be approved. When he has the favor of faithful, discerning men without giving any thought to pursuing their favor, then he's approved. And the other side of this coin is that unfaithful people will make false accusations. I don't have to explain to you why that happens. So if a faithful man is faithful, then faithful men will affirm him. Galatians 2, verse 9, you see faithful men affirming faithful men, where Paul says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. That, brothers and sisters, is what we call being a peacemaker. It also looks similar to an elder ordination, or at least some sort of affirmation. There needs to be a collective effort, a constant assessment, so that those who are in this role of displaying what the standard is by their lifestyle are worthy of following. You know, how are you yourself going to grow in godliness? How are you going to endeavor to faithfully and genuinely and effectively develop a life that's worthy of God by following someone who's not endeavoring to do that himself. Verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much affliction. Under each of our points, the key term is gospel. I wish there was some way for me to do this message again and just focus on the concept of the gospel. You know, each point could be the application of the gospel. With each of our points this morning, there's an emphasis, really, a basis in the gospel itself. As you know, you see that? He's reminding them, you knew us. You knew our character, you knew our conduct, you know our character and conduct, you know that we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. See, Paul speaks with boldness, but he has been humbled by his trials. It's a kind confidence that has been nurtured in affliction. I've often thought and and said, the person who has a trouble-free life is of no help to anyone. The mistreatment and abuse of ungodly men did not deter him and his ministry partners from proclaiming the gospel, not at all. Rather, they proclaimed it boldly, despite the wicked efforts of evil men. So Paul can say, our ministry to you was not meaningless. In July of the year 2011, a group of about 20 people began gathering on consecutive Monday nights in a small community room in Redlands. California. They pleaded with the Lord for wisdom in the hope of planting a church genuinely devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many of them had been part of a larger organization of about 1,500 people that called itself a church, and it was more like a circus. I'm not stretching the reality of what went on at this place. 
so much focus on entertainment and doing that which would draw people in. There was a focus not at all on the gospel, but rather on one flesh-driven event after another, all designed to draw a crowd. Essentially, more people means more money. This small group of people asked me to be their shepherd. Kimberly and I knew these dear people, most of whom are in this room right now. We knew you well. We loved you so much. We'd served in ministry with these dear people for a number of them for six years, and we wept over the thought of them being left without a shepherd. They needed the type of care that we'd been providing, and they had grown to know the difference between shepherding and ranching. A shepherd gently, lovingly cares for people as if they are sheep, sheep who obviously need lots of help and attention. A rancher chases horses and cattle who might otherwise just kind of survive on their own. Sheep need constant, tender care. Providentially, at the same time, I was asked to shepherd a flock of about 200 people in a town about six hours north of here. This also was a great opportunity with a wonderful, faithful group of people. And we grew to love them, and we still do. I still have interaction with some of those folks. But this small group of people here was not a church. They were sheep without a shepherd, with no governing body. So as Kimberly and I prayed, I met with them one time just to tell them that regardless of whether or not I join them, they mustn't go and just start a church on their own. You can't do that. Were they to do that, they would have no way of being able to say that they were certain to have received man's affirmation. Yes, they would have each other's affirmation, but what if someone were to accuse them of not being above reproach or attempting to divide the church? So we leaned on the wisdom of the elders of a well-respected church, Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, several of whose elders had known me for 18 years, and they chose to commission me to shepherd this flock. And I wouldn't have taken this role without their affirmation and commissioning. I would not have done it. I suppose we would be living in Sacramento if Grace Community Church had said, you know, that's probably not something we're interested in. This is the only way this can work. We want to plant churches. We have hopes of planting a church in San Bernardino, and there's some possibility we may be even sooner than what I had expected involved in a church plant in Santa Barbara. Talk about a place that needs the gospel. There's got to be affirmation. Godly men, godly women, looking at the shepherd and believing, not just because they want to give the benefit of the doubt, but because because they know the man's life. Proverbs 3, verse 3 says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. That's a great way to start uh, and motivate somebody to think rightly about how to live. Let me say it again. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. You know, being that person who is committed to love and truth. Don't let those things forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. In other words, make those things the basis for your thinking, your speaking, your looking, your living. Verse 4, so 
you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The man who can only say or is only willing to say, I have God's approval, I'm not interested in man's approval, he's not this guy. He does not trust in the Lord with all his heart. He trusts in himself, which the scripture tells us is foolish. He wants to be an island. He does not want to be assessed. And he's willing to boldly say, God is my judge. I fear no man. What he really means is that he fears the reality of what men actually think about him. So he doesn't want to know it. Well, let her be. A shepherd must have approval from faithful men, but he also must have approval from a sovereign God. Three motives here that were not Paul's in light of his commitment to call Timothy and Silvanus and Titus and Epaphroditus and others to being approved by men and God. Three motives that were not Paul's are error, impurity, and deception. Look at verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. See, this ought to shake a man whose life is marked out by these things. You know? The guy who privately, in the privacy of his own home, is constantly focusing on how he can hide his own condition from those that know him. Paul didn't want that. There was no error. We weren't speaking heresy to you. This is critical, is it not? Having right doctrine sound doctrine. You can't have a faithful church with false doctrine. This is why, one of the reasons, not just this, uh, but this is one of the main reasons why we are so willing regularly to expose you to false doctrine in light of sound doctrine. But Paul says, I didn't come to you with error. I didn't come to you with impurity. Right? There wasn't a hidden life and Paul, he wasn't living a double life. Guys, are you living a double life? Some of you are, and you know it. And people around you are beginning to see that in you. You're not willing to confess it yourself. And the moment somebody comes to you, you do all the better to hide it. I know many men, many faithful men in our church, and I want to be very careful and committed to pointing this out, who are not living a double life. What you see is, in fact, the reality and you know how you can know that about a guy? He's known by confession. He's known by a willingness to tell the truth about himself. He is first to address his sin. The guy who never, ever addresses his own sin is hiding a lot of sin or thinks he is. The only person he's fooling is himself. The more people get to know him, the less he wants them to get to know him. Deception, well, that's just the kind of the icing on the cake of error and impurity. Why is he deceitful? Because he has error and he has impurity. Paul says, not me, not Sylvanus, not Timothy. But he also is saying, you know this about me. You know this about me. 
Peter warns against these very attributes that characterize false teachers in 2 Peter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, right, their impurity. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, false doctrine. Isn't that interesting? The very things that Paul says to the Thessalonians he's not guilty of, Peter points out as the very three things that false teachers are known by. This is black and white. You need to know this about your shepherd, your shepherds. And if you find yourself involved in a situation where there's no avenue for determining these things, that's a place to run from. So again, Paul appeals to their experience with him. Paul's heart was pure. His conscience was clear. In 1 Corinthians 4, I don't have time to go into it, but he speaks of this reality that his conscience is clear, but that ultimately God is his judge. Well, how does God bring about assessment through men, you know, he's not going to write on your wall. He's not going to speak to you through a movie or a dream. Your life is to be assessed. Everyone's lives are to be assessed by faithful believers. Ultimately, God will judge all men, and he will do so perfectly. And we ought to live with that in mind. We ought to think and act and speak, remembering that God looks on the heart. While men will never perceive us precisely as we are, God does, and one day he will expose it all. But in the meantime, the person who wants to be faithful follows people who are faithful and willing to be assessed. Verse 5 For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. The person who speaks so well of you to your face, but clearly says other things when you're not in the room, and does so with evil and malicious intent, he's a flatterer, and it's not honest. Paul could say, God is witness. God knows the truth. God who is sovereign, who chose you and loves you as evidenced in your faithfulness. He is our witness. Why would you want the witness of any other God? Why would you want the witness of a non-sovereign God? Why would you want that witness? An impotent, helpless, feeble witness. But see, this is our comfort. God knows the truth about us. God knows all the details about us and still deems us to be fit for ministry. That's what Paul's saying. God is our testimony. He is our advocate. We ultimately rest in his omniscient record of our life and deeds. Why would anyone hate the concept of God's sovereignty? Why? Because they don't want the accountability. They know that their life is not approvable by a God who is, in fact, sovereign. God is our testimony. He's our advocate. We ultimately rest in his omniscient record of all that we are and all that we do. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, 
See that? There's a difference between seeking glory from people and gaining affirmation from people. He's very clear. He qualifies this by saying, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. You and I can't say that. We are not apostles. There are no apostles today. The last apostle died in the first century. We couldn't have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul could have leaned on his authority as an apostle, but instead he leaned on the mutual joy and power they shared as brother recipients of the gospel that came to them with the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This is how he knows they are, as he says, he's word for word, this is how Paul knows they are brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so he provides an example for us as shepherds in your local church. This is the blueprint. But we should never seek the glory or praise of men, and we ought to be careful to graciously dismiss it when we receive it. It's the difference between being affirmed and being worshipped. While some will be inclined to accuse a faithful shepherd of sins he didn't commit, some will refuse to believe they are capable of sin at all. As shepherds, we must surround ourselves with those who will love us enough to tell us the truth about us. A faithful shepherd will want those who speak the truth in love around him. A friend of mine in ministry used to often say to me, Todd, I've never heard you say anything I disagree with. And I would say, give me time. It's been years since I've heard that phrase from that dear friend. But he loves me anyway. A shepherd must have God's approval, but his approval is confirmed by men. Point number two, a shepherd must have affection. He must not only have approval from faithful men and from a sovereign God, a shepherd must have affection like a gentle nursing mother. That's right, a gentle nursing mother. Paul says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This matter of a mother who nurses her children is not always so sweet and tender. I've watched my wife care for six little ones, and without going into too much detail, let me just say that there's a reason some animals eat their young (laughs) The baby just wants to eat. He just wants to fill his tummy. He sucks and gulps and gasps, and he doesn't care at all about what damage he causes along the way. You mothers know what I'm talking about. Once the little ones grow teeth, I shouldn't imagine how intensely painful that it is for a nursing mother. And yet when she cares for children, she bears up through the pain. And this, after experiencing the nearly unbearable task of giving birth to the little thing, which in some cases are not so little. I've been in the room to see six live birds. It's violent. And I wouldn't wish it on anyone. 
After eight or nine months of agony, dealing with the heat and the cold and the cravings and the clothes that no longer fit and the emotions and the fears and the cravings and the needs of the other older children and the cravings, uh, then the baby makes its entrance, which is really more of an exit. And it's awful. It's awful. It's so painful. No wonder Paul uses this earthly experience to illustrate for us in Romans 8 by saying, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The glorified state will be worth all the suffering, and for the mother who endures months of pregnancy and labor when the nurse hands over that little and sometimes not so little wet wrinkled person she's been dreaming about meeting and holding who lets out the little shrill cries that simultaneously depict astonishment, love, anger, and helplessness. She takes the child into her arms and would willingly and immediately endure a thousand times the pain she just went through. And she proves it by breastfeeding the little thing. Titus 1, verse 7, Paul says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 and 3, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be gentle, not quarrelsome. He has the heart of a nursing mother. You see the shepherd's picture in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. He's patient and kind. It says about love that it does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. My longtime friend Jim Rickard, who most of you know about, has told me the story of a great motherly-like tenderness in a particular moment with John MacArthur. They were sitting at a Masters University basketball game, and during a break in the game, a man who was very angry with John approached him, swearing, speaking to him with horrific malice and slander, making untrue accusations about him. When the man took a breath, John reached out and touched his sleeve and simply said, would you please pray for me? That's the tender heart of a mother, even in the moment of her children's waywardness, a willingness to speak maliciously and unlovingly. The tender mother only wants the best and is willing to display that tenderness so that the best would be experienced that story might not be what you would expect from someone in the public eye whose life is above reproach but likely receives untold false accusations. Can you imagine what someone of that profile experiences? But that's the natural response 
of a tender-hearted shepherd. The shepherd, when mistreated, humbles himself and asks for better understanding so he might better shepherd the flock. Why? And how? Verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you. It's not just about having this exemplary character. It's out of love for those whom he loves. There is a willingness to be gentle because of his love for the flock. It means to take a high degree of pleasure in another, this idea of being affectionately desirous. It's a mental satisfaction. It's a God-given interest in people. It runs much deeper than the superficial interest that is motivated by one who can get something from another person. Years ago, as a shepherd of a flock, within a flock, I was reprimanded by my employer. I was told I was spending too much time with people in the church, counseling them, encouraging them. This is when I was told to stop being a shepherd, start being a rancher. Paul here goes on to say, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now let me just qualify this by saying, a shepherd can't do that with people who won't receive it. Understand that? He can try, and he can be available in the moments of greatest weakness and sadness and sorrow and tribulation and trial. He can be there, and he, he should be there, but he can't force anybody to actually function as a sheep. Why does he do this? Why does a shepherd pour himself into people? Why does he give not only the gospel of God, but his life? Because he's affectionately desirous of a people. There's a personal, intimate love that overflows. We see this in our Savior's words in John 10, 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my sheep. You see, that's the growing mindset, attitude, and action of the true shepherd. He's willing to give his life. Now, me giving my life for you wouldn't result in much, but that's the attitude. That's the idea. 1 Peter 5, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I have a number of what you might call policies based on biblical principle in my life as a pastor, and one of them comes from this in particular, that I'd not domineer it over people, but also from Proverbs 9 and from Matthew 7, and that is to never, ever attempt to correct a scoffer. I've failed, but for the most part, at the point a person shows himself to be a scoffer, I stop. 
because the scripture commands it. In Matthew 7, we're told to not give what is holy to dogs. That term dog there reflecting the disinterest in a person's heart of sound theology. And you might wonder, well, how come Todd never talks to me about these things? It might be because I've tried. And there was no response. There was no willingness to actually have a conversation. I don't know that that's much true at all in our church, but certainly there have been numerous times in my life where I've, I've said, hey, I got no open door here. You know, I'm not going to force my way in. The scripture commands that I not do that. Some of you remember my little series I did sometime back, and I talked about Coach Heflin. Remember Jack Heflin, my, my coach? He would say, I've been shot, I've been stabbed, I fear no man. This is, you know, speaking to seventh graders on the first day of seventh grade football. We're going, uh, maybe I'll play basketball. Uh, I like um, ice hockey. I fear no man, <laughs> I fear God and God alone. And he said to us, though, something that stuck with me. And he said, if I'm not yelling at you, I've forgotten about you. Now, I wouldn't apply that to the pastorate. (laughs) But take it for what it's worth. If someone in spiritual leadership has given up trying, it might be because you've worn them out. I don't know how to give up. But I do know how to resist the temptation to rebuke a person who refuses to hear a rebuke. We see this model in the person of our Savior in Philippians 2. We're told to have this mind, the mind of Christ among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if you go back to verse 3 in Philippians 2, the command is this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The NAS says more important than yourselves. This is what a shepherd does. And it manifests itself in a willingness to speak the truth in love, not only when, but maybe especially when a person is about to do himself much harm. He does so with a loving, gentle, motherly, nursing affection. It's in his heart, it's who he is, but it is particularly applied to a particular people. Right? I don't shepherd the flock of God in New Jersey or in Sacramento. And I don't try to. I have no interest in endeavoring to do that. You're enough to handle And may I say, with great pleasure, I receive plenty of joy. I don't need to get it somewhere else. And it's a matter of easy and quick and uninterrupted gratitude in my heart that I have you. If you had any idea what so many, many, many pastors go through, and it's so different from the joy that I experience, you'd know how heartbreaking the pastorate often is. Not for me. Not for me. It's heartbreaking, but it's not pervasively and uninterruptedly and discouragingly heartbreaking. Well, letter B, 
The shepherd must have affection like a hard-working, encouraging father. He works hard. Look at Paul. Look how hard Paul worked. He did what he did, caring for the church the way some of you hard-working fathers, some of you working two jobs, three jobs at a time, doing whatever you need to do, working extra around Christmas because you can and you know you need to to provide your, for your family. Some of you are working hard now. You're not yet married, but you're looking forward to how the Lord will use your hard work now. You know, you single men, you, need to be, you should be working as much as you possibly can, preparing to be able to spend more time with your family when that day comes. He must have affection for people like a hard-working, encouraging father. In the same way that Paul says here that he cares for them, or he cared for the Thessalonians as a mother cares for her own children. Did you catch that? For her own children, not just as children that need help. But that's the affection, that's the personal mindset In the same way, a shepherd will care for the sheep as if he, as a father, is caring for his own children. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.18, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox, when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul's not saying here a pastor should not receive wages. Here with the Thessalonians in their deep poverty, Paul would rather not have added to their burden, so he worked hard and he received income from other churches. Thessalonians had no ability to pay him. The burden would likely have been unbearable for them, so he chose not to receive it and to get it elsewhere. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Who does that? A sovereign God in eternity past calls people into his kingdom and into his glory. Now, why the separation? Why two different terms? Why kingdom and glory? Isn't the kingdom in glory? Part of it is. Part of it's right here. You're sitting next to it. You're in it. The kingdom of heaven on earth is the church. And so Paul is pointing here to the fact that they are witnesses, but also God is witness as to how he and Sylvanus and Timothy conducted themselves. And he uses three interesting terms here, and they're different. They're somewhat synonymous, but they are different from each other. He says, we exhorted, we encouraged, and we charged. Now, pay some attention here to the difference between these terms. It's no mistake. It wasn't by accident. It wasn't a slip of the pen that Paul used three different terms. Exhortation speaks of coming alongside. It's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit, the parakletos, comes alongside side. And so Paul says that. We came alongside you as a father would his own children. He spends time with his children. He loves being with them. You know, as my kids get older, it's really easy when they're little to tickle and play with them and, you know, just have crazy fun and tuck them in and do all those things. As they get a little bit older, you start doing things that adults do together, and it just becomes an increasing joy 
my two oldest sons are becoming men. And um, I hadn't any idea that they would be more enjoyable as young men than as small children. But this is the reality of a shepherd. I mean, I've been experiencing this with you for seven years, and I've kind of been growing into being a father during that time as well. Paul can confidently speak of his having come alongside them. We exhorted each one of you. That word exhortation is uh, really to gather oneself arm in arm and, and help to do life, to be a helper. The term encouragement really is to comfort, you know, in the right moment to say what needs to be said, to be sensitive enough to know when things are difficult, when things are hard, and to take a moment and say, hey, let me just tell you what I think you need to hear. But if Father wants to encourage, Paul said, we did that. We do that. That's what a shepherd does. He's willing to take the time necessary, and he's not always looking for some response. Let me just say, in my pastoral ministry and my efforts to encourage people, many times I hear nothing back. I don't always know what to think of that, but I know that I don't need a response. The effort was to say what needed to be said to provide some encouragement and then to charge. And this is very different. It's similar in some senses, but it is different from the other two terms. It's to implore. It's to testify. It's to give a warning. If... um, that person with pastoral oversight in your life has not provided some sort of testimony of your life against the Scripture, right? He has not charged you. He has not reproved, rebuked, corrected you. This is the natural reality in a fatherly relationship with his children. He not only encourages and uh, exhorts, but he charges, he gives a warning. He does it with love, but he does what needs to be done. And Paul can say, this is how we treated you. Don't you love this privilege, men? Don't you love this? Would you want it to be any other way? Would you want to not have this duty? Would you want to get to the end of your life and say, man, I'm sure glad I didn't invest in people because it made my life a lot easier. Hey, man, how about you? How about those of you who've, who've maybe thought about, dreamed about, spent some time praying about how your life will be assessed at the end? Isn't this what you want? Right? Don't you want to be able to say, I invested in people, not just my own kids, but I invested in my kids in a way that others looked on, and therefore there was an investment in them. And as I invested in them, I was investing in my kids. Let me tell you something. After seven years, one of the greatest joys in my life is the influence that some of you have on my children today. When my son comes to me and says to me, hey, Dad, I'm spending time with Neo. Oh, good. That's, praise God. I want that. You know, as I've watched the young men in our church become worthy of leading others, I can't influence my kids by myself. Who would want to do that? Men, those of you who have had thoughts about investing in people, go to your family group shepherd and ask, how do I start this process? How do I start becoming a man who is worthy of God? That's the call. 
you got to be assessed. you got to be willing to be affirmed by men, affirmed by God. It's discipleship. It's a willingness to pour into others, to, to be assessed by them and to assess them. What's the point of all this? So that the sheep would walk in a manner worthy of God by looking for and enjoying the gentle nursing care of a shepherd, a shepherd who actually feeds the flock and does so knowing that occasionally the sheep are going to bite back, but he still feeds them the truth, hoping they will grow to be nourished and strengthened by it. Second, so that the sheep will walk in a manner worthy of God by looking for and enjoying exhortation and also the encouragement, but also the charging of the faithful shepherd. As you look for and enjoy exhortation, encouragement, and the charge of a shepherd, I would encourage you first to rejoice where you are walking in a manner worthy of God. That's my first encouragement to you. If that's happening, if you can confidently say, my understanding of the gospel, my understanding of the interdependence of the body of Christ has resulted in my doing what I do. The things that I do in the body, I do those not out of external compulsion. I do them out of a love for Jesus Christ. I do those out of a love for the lost who don't yet know him. I do those hoping that my role in the body of Christ is an edifying role. It's having an edifying, strengthening impact on the body. So rejoice in that, even if it's the smallest thing barely measurable. Rejoice. The Lord's produced that in your heart, and you're doing that. Look to Ephesians 4 if you want a good reminder on how the pastor, teacher, shepherds the flock with equipping, leading to the flock, being raised up into Christ that the church would be built up by love. Well, second, assess yourself. Are you really walking in a manner worthy of God? Are you, listen, are you useful? Are you useful? In 2 Peter 1, verse 10, Peter says, Brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I won't go through all of it, but if you go back to verse 3 there in Second Peter chapter 1, what you see is the faithful practices of a faithful believer that has an impact on the church. Peter says here, you don't want to be counted useless. You don't want to be unfruitful. In verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Assess your life. And assessing your life is not something you can do on your own. You'll get it wrong every time. To assess your life means being willing to be assessed by Others, be certain about your calling and your election. As you do this, seek counsel, serve with grace, 
When you give to the church, do you give by grace? Do you do it under completion? Do what you do under completion. You know, what we need more than anything else in our church, as does any church, is a group of people who function by grace, not out of external compulsion, do so with joy, with love for Christ, love for the body, a love for the lost, and will do what he or she does with faithfulness in the details. One of the greatest difficulties in pastoral ministry is when people don't carry things out. You might even, you might even be saying to yourself, whatever happened to that ministry? I mean, I was involved in that. Whatever, whatever went on with that? How come that doesn't happen anymore? I might be thinking the same thing. Now think of it. My role is not for you to get an idea to add something to my plate. But sometimes that's how it goes with people. They get an idea. Well, how come the anchor doesn't do this? They throw out the idea. We say, hey, that's a great idea. And then they get all frustrated because nothing's happening with it. Well, believe me, i got plenty to do. But I don't mind at all nurturing in you, helping equip you to do what we might be needing to do. You might be saying, nobody's doing anything with that ministry anymore. And it might be that you're the one that needs to do it. Or you might be thinking, that ministry needs to be started. Well, don't just run out and do it. Seek affirmation from those who know you and know you well. Serve with joy. Serve with grace. Serve with thanksgiving. Serve unto completion. Give unto completion. Teach unto completion. Do those things in a way that would honor the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, we've looked at what Paul describes narratively as a faithful shepherd who has received the approval of God and man. We saw also seen in this text that a shepherd must have affection as a gentle nursing mother, but also as a hard-working, encouraging father. But what's the point? What's the point if the local body is not growing in likeness to the person of Jesus Christ that we might be able to say the flock is increasingly walking in a manner worthy of God? If we're not doing that, we're spinning our wheels, wasting our time. Let's go to the Lord now and ask him to help us. Father, we thank you for the richness and perfection of your word. We pray that our time together would result in legitimate faithfulness in each of our lives. Lord, we do rejoice where you've blessed us with the thrill of faithful and effective ministry. Lord, we ask that you would help us to avoid the idea that faithfulness simply means spending more time. Maybe in some cases it does. Maybe for some folks it means cutting out much wasted time on the internet or elsewhere, doing things that are not useful. But Father, maybe for some it simply means redirecting time already spent in ministry, maybe recalibrating things. For some, Lord, it probably means a complete upset of a philosophy of ministry, a philosophy of scripture, a philosophy of who God is and what he has done for his glory. Lord, we pray for each person in the room and everyone who will hear this message that you would do a work in us that would cause us in our hearts to move increasingly toward living lives that are worthy of you as Paul has called us under the shepherding care of faithful men. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.